Welcome back to episode number 171 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Colony. In today's episode, we have back on the podcast, Steve Hunt, uh, USW, United Steelworkers District 3 Director, and that's the, the district for Western Canada. Steve, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Excited to have Steve back on today. We had a really good discussion last week in episode 170 about the history of the United Steelworkers in Canada. We talked about the work that USW does, how Steve got involved with them, uh, what his role is today. We talked about some history in terms of involvement with combustible dust, in terms of impact of the Westray coal mine explosion, and some of the initiatives that they've been looking to tackle and challenges they've been addressing in Canada ever since. Today's episode, we're going to talk a bit more about some more recent incidents, Babine Forest Products and Lakeland Mills. Um, these are incidents that we covered on the podcast before with uh, David Murray, I believe, and the work that he had done there. There it is, episode 98, History of the Manufacturing Advisory Group, and 97, Lessons Learned from Two British Columbia Sawmill Explosions. Um, David was kind enough in those episodes to share his experience as the role that he's playing in industry when those explosions happened and what the impact was that they had and the longstanding impact. This is sort of a different take of this that we're going to go through in, in today's episode from the, the perspective of USW, from the United Steelworkers, uh, and the, the work that they're doing there. So I guess the, the place to jump in, just from, from your perspective, Steve, what impact did Babine Forest Products and Lakeland Mills incidents have on USW and, and your work with the union there? Like, where were you at the time the incidents happened, and how did that evolve into the thinking that was going on at the time? Chris, when, uh, when the Babine Lake uh, sawmill exploded, I... I came out of the mining industry and I was not familiar with wood dust explosions. And in fact, we had no idea what caused the explosions. And uh, I called as many people as I possibly could to determine what would, what would cause a catastrophic explosion in a sawmill. And, and, and we were really, I'd just be blunt fumbling around trying to find out what happened. And there was reports, it was a gas explosion. Uh, it was, it was everything, anything but a wood, a wood dust explosion. And uh, we patiently waited to, to find out from the regulators what had happened after their investigation. They locked the site down. The RCP were there because it was fatalities and serious injuries. Uh, you, you know, work safe for the Workers' Compensation Board was there uh, investigating. And we were barred from uh, even engaging in any type of investigation. I sent uh, some people out to uh, interview uh, survivors uh, and really do some rudimentary stuff, Chris, like do block diagrams. Where were you standing when the explosion happened? And and all we saw was pictures and and the the mill was completely gone. I mean, when I say catastrophic, I mean, the RCMP first looked for bomb evidence, you know, so... It was really confusing at the start uh, at, at the Lakeland Mill. We, we, we really had no idea what happened. And I guess just for a little context, we talked about this last week uh, about the role that USW plays, but people might be wondering why were you involved in at all, the United Steelworkers, in sort of a, a you know a forest product or sawmill incident? Like, how how'd that come about? Well, we represent the workers in the sawmilling industry. There was a merger with the, with a, with the old IWA, the International Industrial Woodworkers of America. Uh, and they changed their names a few times, or International Woodworkers Canada. So they merged with the steelworkers, and, and we uh, we started taking over, uh, you know, the uh, 
the affairs of the, the old IWA. Part of that is obviously sawmills and uh, and forestry. So so we were new to it, but we have people obviously that work in the industry that had some idea that, uh, that you know maybe what was going on. And once again, I called people, anybody I could to to say, have you ever heard of a of a catastrophic explosion like this? And, and nobody had. I mean, there was small pops as they called them, where you know, a welder might have ignited some wood dust, but uh, nothing, nothing as severe as this ever. And David Murray, I, I mentioned the outside of the podcast, shared a similar story when the first explosion happened. And he really attributed, from his perspective, he was just at the point where the second explosion happened. Uh, I can't remember now. I can't remember which one came first, but Lakeland Mills or Babine. But he was sort of the point of just handing it as a one-off, saying, "Oh, that's." You know, never going to happen again. Right. And then they had back-to-back large sawmill explosions. I, I don't know if there's any room for you to discuss the, the second incident. Is that something you were involved in as well? Sure. We uh, we we were very uh, say angry that that we were excluded from the uh, from the investigation. We have a we have a, a statutory right under the Workers' Compensation Act uh, to investigate uh, where there's injuries, and and we were denied that. So it. It took some fighting with um, the WCB or WorkSafe, as they're called here, uh, to get access. The day we got access, I sent two people up to the uh, to the Lakeland or so the the Babine Lake Mill. They had just parked their cars uh, to go in and look at the uh, the accident site or the explosion site. They got a call that the second mill had exploded. So it was it's just unbelievable. Uh, you know, I don't know what coincidence, but we thought it was a one-off as well. And uh, as I say, they just got out of their vehicles and the second, they got a call, the second mill had exploded uh, about three hours away. Yeah. And that's a key point I want to emphasize folks. This was a separate sawmill three hours away, unrelated to the, the first one. Yeah. Another catastrophic explosion. And we have seen since then the Bosley mill explosion in the UK, I believe in Cheshire, that is of similar level of destruction. I believe the facility layout was was different than these ones, mm-hmm. but uh, fueled by by combustible wood dust, explosive wood dust, and we've certainly seen some other historical ones as well. The discussion here, and I mentioned this last week, where we where I said that the the, the reason I reached out to USW and and that was based on this article, United Steelworkers Statement on the tenth anniversary of a bean sawmill explosion, where you and some some others from USW sort of talked about some of the outcomes of those incidents in terms of worker safety and and, uh, workers' rights. And one of those was a report that was published, I believe her name is Lisa Help. Um, Lisa Help's report, WorkSafe BC and Government Action Review, Crossing the Rubicon. And I think that's sort of what we're going to talk about in this episode is, is what came out of that, what's still, you know, needs to happen. But I think a good place to start on that is just who who commissioned this review and and why was that review completed? The uh, the provincial government commissioned the the, the, the uh, report. So there was a change in government during the explosion. The Liberal government uh, was in power here, and uh, and it changed to the NDP government. While in opposition, the uh, the, the the NDP called for a public inquiry uh, into these uh, tragedies. It was. Uh, it was, I mean, very emotional. There was a whole lot of people hurt, communities that were absolutely devastated, and uh, and, and the appeal around the province was uh, was huge uh, to t- to take action. And and people were very concerned about uh, 
uh, you know, what had happened or what the causes were. And, and, and it was discovered that the workers' composition or WorkSafe really, really messed up in their investigations. Uh, uh, and, and I drew the connection to Westray. It was, to me, almost a carbon copy of ineptitude and incompetence and uh, all the things that led to the Westray explosion happened at these two mills. And uh, they, they did two of, the, two of their biggest investigations in, in the history of WorkSafe. And, and messed both of them up. They tainted evidence that uh, you know they couldn't even prosecute under their own own regulations or act. There was no criminal uh, prosecution because the uh, because WorkSafe had messed it up so badly. So so it, it was just screaming for intervention. And when the uh, when the NDP came to power, we we, we continued to uh, to uh, hammer away at them to uh, to do something to get answers and. And they commissioned Lisa Helps. Uh, there's a lawyer here in British Columbia, and she uh, she did a thorough report on uh, on the on the two explosions with limitations. She couldn't look at criminality; she she was restricted from that under her terms of reference. So she just looked at the facts as they were laid out and came up with a pretty comprehensive report. And we'll include in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com/slash one seventy one. That's the number one seven one a link to the Lisa Helps report that we're talking about. Um, I'll include the Bosley Mill explosion. We'll include some of the WorkSafe BC reports that were completed and released, the USW statement that I talked about earlier, and some of, just any other the resources that come up in this, this episode, we'll include there if you want to dig into those more. So that's a bit of background on why this review was commissioned and put in place. What were some of the recommendations that came out of the Helps report? Again, I think this was published on the covers as August 2019. So I'm going to say that's when it was published. What were some of the, the recommendations that came out of that? Well, there was many, many recommendations, most of which have been complied with, but some of them were, they, they, they had a, a system where the, 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 the Workers' Compensation Board would, would, would uh, start an investigation. Uh, if they thought that there might be criminality, they had a step back and a new investigative team would come in and investigate and refer to, to, uh, to in this case, the RCMP. She recommended that they get rid of that, and and the police put, put, put the police would be responsible at the start on an investigation of you know that might have criminality. So, my analogy to a motor vehicle accident: the police seize the scene and own it, not the workers' compensation board or the government regulators. So they they would have to come in and determine de- determine if there was any criminality first. That was a huge change, uh, and that was one of the one of the legs of the stool, the three legs that we had in our stop the killing campaign is get the police trained uh, to to do that. Um, there was some regulatory changes, for example, the uh, the the CEO, president and CEO of the Workers' Compensation Board would would determine if there was going to be charges laid. Uh, we we saw that as a it sort of Lisa helps a conflict of interest. That was changed, so. Um, you know that rate was taken away, um, and 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 just you know some common sense stuff like the right to the union to investigate uh, was assured. It was assured in the act before that, but uh, this helps um, reaffirm that we that we had a right, a statutory right, to be involved in the investigation from the start. You know there was there, a number of recommendations that have not been acted on and. In October of last year, we were meeting. We met with the uh, uh, the Attorney General and uh, the Minister of Labor to pick up on this. And 
two of the recommendations that uh, she made was a funding set aside to train police officers in investigating workplace fatalities and serious injuries and Crown Council that has still not been acted on. Um, there was another one too, a victim impact statement. So, um, uh, you know, any any victims, in this case, uh, you know, survivors and, and victims had no no way to tell their stories or, 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 or to talk about anything that might have happened to them, how their lives have been changed. Uh, and, and in most criminal cases, they do. They still haven't acted on that. And she also recommended that uh, there be an ombudsperson so that workers that were, were afraid could call a confidential number. And in, in this case, in the uh, sorry, in the Lakeland case, the second explosion, a worker called the confidential number at WorkSafe uh, to, to tell them that they had to do something, otherwise they're going to be another lake or another baby lake sawmill explosion. And the workplace inspector thought it was okay to share that with the employer. Right. <laughs> you know, so so economic heroin once again, um, you know, came, came into play here. I think. So the footprint on, on both exposures to me rang very, very similar to Westray. And you've mentioned the Stop the Killing campaign. There were three legs, I think you mentioned, you called them. One was train the police. What were the other two legs? Just so I have them. Well, they wanted to train the police, train, train the, uh, the, the, uh, the Crown Council, and, and train the regulators to understand that this is not about turf. This is about about using all of the tools at your expose at your disposal. You have workplace rules that are, you know, in Ontario Ministry of Labor, Department of Labor. Uh, you know, in British Columbia, it's WorkSafe. Uh, in Nova Scotia, it's Department of Labor. Those are your workplace rules. There's a criminal code uh, that. It's also a tool that you can use. And, and once again, we don't want a whole bunch of CEOs in jail. One or two would be good, uh, you know, to, to, to show that, you know, we, we can stop the killing by enforcing the law and at least at least look at all the laws. And what we found in all of these or most of these cases was this is our turf and you don't own it. We, we have the responsibility and work together work together to prevent uh, workplace death and injury. How about that? A novel idea. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I'm going to summarize some of the, the recommendations. Actually, maybe I'll pull up the report. So it looks like it has 11 recommendations. So I'm not going to go through them all, but I, I will read them as I, I go through some of this here. The big one that you mentioned was just the order of operations, where traditionally one organization would have to start the investigation. And then when they determine that there may be some sort of criminal criminality to it, they would have to step back and then bring in the RCMP. The recommendation is to switch that order so the criminality gets investigated first and then hand it over to the, the, the next group. Was that correct? Yes, that's correct. And then you had some other things around police officer training, training the Crown Council, training the regulators as well, having some sort of way to communicate the stories of the victims. And I guess in a criminal case, I guess what you're saying, in a criminal case, there, there is a mechanism for that. But in a occupational or process, well, occupational safety framework, the one that exists today, there is no no mechanism for that. Is that what you were saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. Those are some really interesting uh, aspects. And you, So which ones are still outstanding then? I think because you mentioned some of them have been implemented today. Yeah. Um, which ones are you still fighting to, to try to have pushed ahead? 
the, the biggest ones we're fighting is the training for police. So funding set aside to train police officers. So, for example, once again, p- police are trained to investigate motor vehicle accidents. It's an easy one. It's, a, it's an easy parallel. Uh, nobody expects a motor vehicle accident. What happens? Uh, so they got a dedicated team that comes out. They video, they uh, they take measurements, they'll, they'll rebuild equipment. Uh, you know, the police are equipped to do that, and they're trained to do that quite readily. Uh, in a workplace uh, fatality, you know, the police are not equipped to, to know that. So so we, what we suggested, for example, is you train some police officers everywhere. So if there's a fatality or serious injury, you could call on those places, resident experts. They can rely on workplace inspectors to help them, but they would be in charge of the investigation. So, for example, they're not familiar with, with, with a process, for example, a dust process. What does this mean? Get an inspector in there to work with them so they can they could do their investigation and 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 you know rule out criminality uh, right from the start. But that that's what we want. We also wanted Crown Council to be trained so that they could rely on somebody, and it may be the police or a workplace inspector to to brief them or educate them, not brief them, educate them on the process that was in effect uh, that in this example caused dust. Uh, to be uh, to explode, you know, we thought that one, one of the things too in the in the helps report that we pointed out there was a senior manager at WorkSafe that that uh, wrote a report uh, that uh, Ms. Helps uh, reviewed, and one of his statements or in there was was the student in industry sensitivity at this time. We're not going to enforce the dust, dust regulation. <laughs> You know, and she said in her report uh, on page 51, uh, industry sensitivity should never be factored into the safety of workers in British Columbia. Uh, you know, so, so, so when you think about things that really went astray here, industry sensitivity. <laughs> I, 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 I oftentimes, Chris, thought, at what point do worker sensitivity come into play? It is the workers' compensation board. It's not the industry compensation board. It wasn't ever in, in every one of our provinces and territories. Work, workplace rules were created for work, for employers. They were to help uh, workers uh, go home safely at the end of every uh, every day. That was ser- severely missed in this one. That's why I say the parallel between this and West Street to me was <laughs> was so obvious. Yeah, and I mean, having been exposed to both, you can kind of—it's almost like reliving oh. the tragedy again oh. and again, right? Yeah, it really, really is. It was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, something kind of popped in my head here that I think could be interesting, given the audience we have for the podcast. So we have a broad audience. You know, we have consultants, equipment manufacturers, workers, health and safety managers. There's some regulators on here. Um, there are some uh, workplace safety investigators. So that'll be interesting. But the, the perspective that we also have here is a lot of associations. And if there's somebody out there that's in an association, that is trying to vie for workers' rights against whatever the, the structure is, like against the government trying to get motion. I feel like this is an area that you have a lot of expertise in, mm-hmm. um, in terms of USW's efforts and in, in, in lobbying in that. What kind of, like, is there any, <laughs> probably it's a whole another separate podcast episode, but there's an association that's trying to facilitate change at this level out there. Any words of encouragement for them, or any suggestions on approaches or techniques? Sure, I mean there's a, there's a there's a whole lot of good associations out there, and industry inspectors uh, uh, that that really really get this. I mean, my uh, 
my biggest uh, fight has always been this, this is the right to refuse unsafe work it has to be instilled in everybody you know and when i when i talk uh, often about economic heroin workers know generally what it's unsafe but they continue to work because of peer pressure because of uh speed up if if you don't do the job at the time when, when the when the two sawmills exploded uh, the economics of sawmilling was was really uh, lumber prices were down they were sawing uh, something called bug kill which was uh, dead standing uh, timber and people were being told and and they were looking around there was a sawmill going down all the time so so people were worried about losing their jobs so so in that case you, you know for any industry association regulators or anybody that's listening instill always that workers have the right to refuse unsafe work and for the time it takes to investigate a refusal just encourage people to use that right it is a right it's not a it's not it's not a gift it's a right in every set of legislation across the country and uh, that's the biggest miss for me uh, is, 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 is that's misunderstood. Uh, it's misunderstood by workers. And we can do all the education in the world. If employers, uh, you know, train workers to say, you know, part of your training is knowing your rights and your rights, are, you know, there's three, three, there's more, more than three, but generally three rights. The right to, to refuse unsafe work, the right to know the hazards that are, are facing you. Dust, for example, is a hazard. Know that it's explosive. And if you see too much dust, then stop the job, refuse. And the right to participate, the right to participate in health and safety, in your health, own health and safety. If you start on those three principles, I don't think anybody can go wrong, ever. Yeah, I like that a lot. Something that kind of comes up in, in my mind, why I'm so happy to have you on the, the podcast time with this discussion is that we get better results when we we work together. I think you actually already said that um, in this in this interview, but... What I mean is, say we're writing a, um, a comprehensive industry standard for combustible dust, which has been attempted in the U.S. And, and has failed, and certain Canadian provinces are looking towards doing similar things. But the thing I want to mention is, like, it should be a comprehensive effort between the regulators, between the industries, and between experts. And the ones that haven't gone, the ones that have gone well in the past, speaking globally, have been a, have been that combined effort. The ones that haven't gone as well. You know, maybe the experts write the documentation and that's up to the regulators to adopt it or not. And, you know, industry may may or may not be involved. So it's really helpful if you can get a really good industry association or somebody represents large swath of, of a given industry to be involved in that discussion, to sit down with the regulators and also with the experts to hammer out those details. I guess the other thing I'd say on that is, is try not to redesign the wheel either. <laughs> There's already an a lot of safety systems out there in terms of process safety systems that we might have for combustible dust. We don't need a, a NFPA 652 version two written for a small community outside of Quebec. <laughs> like, it, you know, it, it's better to um, refer to other specific, you know, work that's already been done rather than rewriting the wheel. Yeah, no, I think Chris, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. And there's lots of, lots of, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of good work that's going on out there. I mean, I, I, I talk about, Terrible tragedies, but but there's there's a whole lot of successes, and I like what you say. Work work with workers, industry, experts, and and come up with the best solution. Do not reinvent the wheel. 
and, and you know, I just want to I just want to follow up on this. I mean, I've seen hundreds of different audit tools for workplaces, uh, and I think I think this when you have a workplace, first question is, do you have a joint health and safety committee? And if you don't, you fail. <laughs> Simple. Does it? Second question: Is it effective? And if you don't, you fail. Don't go to question three. So start there, uh, and and that's where the cooperation comes in. That's where the safety committee says, "Well, we're unsure of this uh, this dust problem. What do we do? Call an expert, uh, and 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 let's let's not let's not guess. Uh, let's not say, well, you know, what this is the threshold we think, or or somebody read this on a YouTube uh, video." Call an expert and find out. Uh, call the regulators and, and say, look, we're having a problem here. How do we how do we how do we resolve this? That to me, uh, you know, in my wildest dream, would stop the killing by enforcing the law by saying we we are so good at this, we can give examples of how this works to other uh, other workplaces. Boy, we really hit the bell on that one if we could do it. I I couldn't agree more. I'm thinking back to the discussion I have with David Murray because you triggered something that came out of my mind there where he said. After the second sawmill explosion, they were completely shocked. They, you know, they started to write off as a one-off. The second one happened. So then they dug into the the literature on combustible dust and combustible wood dust, and were just floored at all the changes that would be required to meet <laughs> those those levels of of safety at the facilities. And the challenge, if you and and so the, it had a a good news story in that he said today you know, they still have challenges, but they've been able to get much, much closer than he ever thought was possible on that first couple of read-throughs of, of the requirements for levels of dust and, and processing equipment and safety equipment that's installed and hazard assessments that are put in place and process safety initiatives that are put in. Um, and I'm sure there's still gaps across those. But the point I want to make is if you had asked him on day three of reading that, he would have said, oh, we need a much reduced set of standard guidelines. And if, if, we had to have allowed ourselves at that point to write those and make that the requirement, we wouldn't have been able to learn and expand and say, Hey, yeah, we can do this. If we do it stepwise over time, you know, over, over a 10 year period, get much closer to having a, a safe facility. It took us a standard sawmill, maybe 60 or 80 years to get to the point where it is today in terms of its safety program or lack thereof. It, it's not going to happen overnight that we get the, the thing back to, to square one where we can prevent some of these things from happening. Right. I mean, you know, in this one here, I mean, again, the, you know, the regulator had made a conscious decision not to enforce the law. <laughs> Go figure. You know, you talk about an, a failure and, you know, as, as it was reported in the media here, botched investigations. The word was botched. So no cooperation at all between the parties. In fact, it was uh, it was it, it, this was another recipe for disaster, I think, uh, you know, all the way through it. I, I can tell you this, Chris, that uh, I met uh, with the um, I, I think it was the day after the Lakeland Mill. I, I, I demanded a meeting with the then labor minister, the CEO of WorkSafe, and they, they brought a whole parade of people into the room and. I just said, look, can somebody tell me what is exploding these mills? We have a right to know. We have a right to know what's happening in these mills. You're the regulators. You're you're the investigators. What is going on? You know, I get all kinds of squirmy uh, answers. And and finally, I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. If you can't tell me what's killing, killing and hurting our members, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give an edict. And I said to the labor minister, write this down because I expect to go to the, go to the labor board and probably the courts on this. I'm going to give an edict when I leave this meeting 
for the cell metal industry to shut down in this province, just shut it down until you can tell us what's going on. We're going to do a mass refusal. And at that time, they said, well, we have this, uh, we have this idea on a standard that we're going to put out, and they put it out that day on, on dust standards. standards. And, uh, you know, it took that, that much effort uh, to do that. And, you know, boy, it was, uh, it was an awful time. Thank you for sharing the, the history over these last two episodes of USW, of the great work that they continue to do, um, and the behind the scenes and in front of the scenes and the efforts that are being done there. Any last words just to close out the interview? Anything you want to leave the audience with um, before we, we close it off for today? I, I just ask people to, uh, you know, when they go to work, uh, to just make sure they come home safely. And uh, if, you're, if you're a regulator or a, or, 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 or a supervisor, I take care of one another that's 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 how we stop the killing you know let's uh let's make a change in canada let's uh let's let, let, we, we're world leaders in technology we're world leaders in in everything we do uh let's lead the world in how we conduct health and safety in the workplace makes a lot of sense to me and i i would also echo that initiative i i would say that if you do want to contact steve we'll have a way to do that in the show notes this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 171 I'll have links to all the stuff that we mentioned here. We'll also have links to, to USW, United Steelworkers, and where you can um, learn more about them as well. Steve, I want to say thank you for being um, so uh, open and sharing with your time and, and kind to, to our audience to share this history of USW, um, history of the work that you've been doing really over, I guess, an entire career now in, mm-hmm. in, in protecting workers' rights and keeping workers safe. We really do appreciate it. Um, we appreciate the work that USW does as well. Um, I just want to say one last time, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for your interest. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll hopefully uh, get a chance to have somebody from USW or Steve back on in the future. So thanks, Steve. Thank you. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Steve Hunt, Western Canada Director, District Director of USW. We've been talking about the work that the United States workers have been doing in Canada over these last two episodes. We talked a bit about the history, about the group itself about the union and the efforts they've done in protecting workers' rights. We talked about how combustible dust sort of was always on the radar from a, a general scope standpoint, but how Westray brought that maybe to the forefront in terms of coal mine explosions. Um, we talked about the report last time that was Hell's History, report which documents the, UF, the USW's fight to prevent workplace deaths and injuries from the Westray, from the 1992 Westray mine disaster through 2016. We talked all through that last week, and then this week on the podcast, we talked about kind of 2016 and forward. We talked about Babine Force product and Lakeland Mills um, fatal explosion incidents. These are actually back in 2012, so there is they were in the the, the Hell's. See, so yeah, now I'm getting mixed up with Hell's and Lisa Helps, uh, the Hell's history report. But they also started a process in BC of looking at wood dust as a challenge, where we have these back-to-back sawmill explosions. So in this episode, we talked about this report from Lisa Helps that was commissioned through the provincial government, uh, WorkSafe BC, and the Government Action Review, crossing the Rubicon. We talked about some of the recommendations that came out of that, um, a big one being around workplace occupational safety investigations and who should come in first. Uh, the, the old model was, you know, worker comp or other HC would come in, and then if criminality was identified, then step back. So doing that, the recommendation is to bring you know, the RCMP in first and then hand the, the scene over, but have them have control at the very start of the process. So all several other recommendations. This lead into the Stop the Killing campaign from USW where they had these three legs, train the police, 
training the Crown Council and training the regulators. And Steve talked a lot through those initiatives in this podcast episode. When asked about a couple of things that we can do practically in terms of keeping workers safe, Steve talked about the right to refuse work, the right to know about the hazards that you might face, and the right to participate in your safety program as being really some of the key fundamental building blocks to to uh, move worker safety forward. And then we talked about some of the open challenges and how as someone who's trying to drive change at a you know, at a government level, as a, at a country level, or at a provincial level, some of the things that you can look to be doing to help that as well. So uh, I do want to say thank you to USW. I want to say thank you to Steve for coming on the podcast again one last time. And uh, I want to say thank you to everyone that's listening today for the work that you're doing. Industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day with the work that you do. Stay safe, stay productive, and have a good week out there. 